Hello, Just a Story podcast listeners. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. From Hillbilly Horror Stories. We are here to tell you a story of the jackalope. Wait, jackalopes aren't real, are they? Oh, yes, they are, Tracy. Um, prove it. Well, I will. First of all, the jackalope is one of the rarest animals in the world. It's a cross between a now-extinct pygmy deer and a species of killer rabbit. It's primarily in the Wyoming area. They weigh about 3 to 5 pounds, and they can move at a lightning speed up to 90 miles per hour. Now, there are several different stories about this infamous animal. Did you know, for example, that hunters used to wear stovepipes on their legs because they were so dangerous? Well, why would they do that? Um, Because they could get cord from the mantlers. Have you ever seen those antlers on these things? <laughs> You're stupid. Well, in some places, primarily in Wyoming, used to sell jackalope milk. Come on now. Yep, the New York Times even questioned its validity because they said, how could it be real? Because they know it's pretty dangerous to be milking a jackalope. Well, I thought it was milk for a jackalope. No, no, because, see, jackalopes probably don't like milk because their drink of choice is whiskey. And that's how you can catch one, as a matter of fact. Back in the Wild West days, they knew that if you wanted to catch a jackalope, you could lure it in with whiskey. Well, what else do you know, smarty pants? Well, I know they can imitate a human voice. Back in those same Wild West days, back when the cowboys used to kind of gather around the campfires at nighttime and sing their little songs, they could often hear the jackalope singing along, usually as a tenor. (laughs) Well, you have lost your mind. And this is pretty interesting. Did you know that jackalopes only breed during lightning flashes? And their antlers make the task pretty difficult, despite their reputation for fertility. I have a feeling, though, that Jake and Sam will set the record straight. I'm pretty sure you're right. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... Everyone has different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. They start telling you stories of the old... There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back everyone to the show. Hi, I missed you all and I've brought for you today a special meditation. I was reminded of this quote this week. Everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts. And that was said by Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And I think that if we just kind of wallow in the sentiment of it, Maybe we'll have a better week. Maybe it will give us a boost and get us through all together as one big, just a story family. So you look great. You did good. Thank you for being here today. And let us go down the winding road together. Down the rabbit hole. That's the one. The jackalope hole. Ooh. So we do want to thank you all for coming back. And we do want to thank everyone that's come on to iTunes and left ratings and reviews yes we've had some lovely reviews including one from kazzy 1701 and mc24687 which is a license plate in the philadelphia area and if you see it you should pull it over immediately it is not (laughs) do that that guy is freaking out right now (laughs) and if you would like to go on to itunes and leave us a rating and review we would greatly appreciate it also you can go on to your favorite social media such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and contact us there, all at Just a Story Pod. Or you can send an old-fashioned email or visit our website, 
And on our website, we keep all the knowledge. We have all of the sources for all of our episodes and all my illustrations, videos, galleries of newspaper clippings, all various and sundry and whatnot. And through our website, you can also access our merchandise store. There we have merchandise such as apparel, like t-shirts, hoodies, and also now coffee mugs. Which is really the most important thing. On our website, you can also access our Patreon page, where you can get access to our extra episodes, just the stories. And each one of those takes a look at the intersection of fact and fiction, where history becomes legend. And we usually look at unsolved mysteries and not the show. We do look at that, but not there. Let's admit it. We've all been watching that on Amazon. And if you haven't, it's on Amazon. Pause, go watch it. All of it. Robert Stack says that someone could help solve a mystery and maybe it's you. Maybe it's you. But anyway, we take a look at unsolved mysteries and look at their original source material and then discuss or bicker, as it were. And we do want to thank a new Patreon, and that is Caroline Hammond. Thank you so much. You're the prettiest flower in the garden. I know it's true. And if you would like another way to reach out to us and you are feeling talky, you can always call the Just a Story Urban Legend Hotline. And that number is 512-222-3375. Record yourself telling us all about whatever you fancy, your favorite urban legend, scary story, local rumor, or just good gossip. So, Sam. So, Jacob. Back to the story at hand. At Paw. The creature at hand. It's the jackalope. The mythical beast. The jackalope. I think that the jackalope might be my spirit animal. I can see that. (laughs) And you'll see why as well. So what is there to say about the jackalope? We had the hosts of Hillbilly Horror Stories come on and tell us a little bit about it. You should definitely check out their podcast. It is a fun delve into some of the more paranormal stories. With a hillbilly twist. Or twang. That's right, y'all. If we don't have enough of a twang for you. I can't believe people don't realize we're Southern. Oh, some people do. (laughs) But according to lore, the jackalope is an antlered species of rabbit native to the American West. It's very aggressive and uses its antlers to fight, and it's often called the warrior rabbit. As I said, I think it may be my spirit animal. It can mimic human sounds. I do that. Does that include impersonations? Yes. Kind of, because it will sing along to the old cowboys' campfire tunes. Are you telling me there are jackalope country songs? All country songs are jackalope country songs. Not country, though. Country and western? Country and western. <laughs> they just come to the campfire and sing, or you hear someone singing and can't, like, can't find it, and you look around and you notice it's a jackalope. No, you like hear it in the brush. Okay. So they don't come sit at the campfire and pull out their harmonica. One can only dream. <laughs> But also, whenever they're being chased, they'll shout out something like, there he goes, over there. Diversionary tactics. Exactly. They're very clever. Mm-hmm. Trixie rabbit. But there is one way to catch the jackalope. Okay, how would you catch me? If you wanted to catch me, you would need to have coffee? Coffee. Nope. Um, bacon. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> is, it, is it whiskey? Of course. Okay, yes, I am a jackalope. (laughs) So sing that jackalope song, serve him a shot of whiskey, and then once y'all are good drinking buddies, then you can snatch him. And what do you do with a caught jackalope? Well, you could mount him 
As you see in lots of, no, not like that. Oh, <laughs> it was like, not again, not again. No, but speaking of that, they do only breed when lightning flashes. Oh, good. Good to know. Or you could try to milk it. I would suggest you only do that with the female. Do you have nipples, Greg? Could you milk me? Robert De Niro and jackalopes. You can, you can milk the males of their species. <laughs> but what good is jackalope milk? Well, it's a potent aphrodisiac. Oh my God, it's a pun. It's it, like, it's, a, it's basically a, a... You know it, do it. It's, it's, a horny, it's a horny rabbit. It is, it is. Okay. I love that out west logic. But of course, it's very dangerous to do because they're also the horns are used for impaling. Clearly. But good news. Good news. What's it that? is already homogenized. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me fill in the gap. I'm sorry. I've got this logic down pat that, uh, because it bounces. It shakes the milk. It, it, it homogenizes the milk because it jumps. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> we're not making this up. We are. Well, we're not. We're not. Someone did. And I'm able to follow that logic. So you may draw up whatever papers you need to. <laughs> well... You may say it's just a hoax, but Douglas Herrick in 1932 caught and mounted, not like that, taxidermied the first specimen in Douglas, Wyoming. Um, so that's science. I mean, we see him all the time in bars and stuff. I mean, there's a jackalope bar on Dirty Six in Austin. I don't know if I've been there or not. You just don't remember. I think I, you have. Yeah, I have to get so drunk to go down there. So does the jackalope. Yeah. Actually, I think I talked to the jackalope at that bar. Did he talk back? Yes, of course he talked back. He was there singing. So Douglas, Wyoming now has declared itself to be the jackalope capital of America. Because according to legend, the first jackalope was spotted there around 1829. His name was Doc Hoppaday. And now it was. They have jackalope day, which is usually held in June. And you can also buy jackalope hunting licenses, which are restricted to the hunting season of midnight to 2 a.m. on June 31st. Okay, I'm looking at my knuckles, and I'm here to tell you that there is no there is no June 31st. Maybe only in Douglas, Wyoming. Or maybe the jackalope wouldn't change the dates. It's very clever. Very clever. So Douglas Herrick was a longtime resident of Douglas, Wyoming. Okay, was he named after the town or was the town named after him? So many questions. So many questions. A great mystery. And he's often credited with popularizing knowledge of the jackalope. And some tales even state that his grandfather was the one that saw the first jackalope. Doc Coppaday. Yes. Clearly the one that Douglas caught was named Bunny the Kid. Or Bunny the Kit because baby rabbits are called kittens. Now you know. Thank you. (laughs) So, in 1932, Douglas and his brother Ralph were out hunting. And Ralph Herrick says about this fateful day, We just throw the dead jackrabbit in the shop when we come in and it slid on the floor right up against a pair of deer horns we had in there. It looked like the rabbit had horns on it. And so his brother Douglas said, Let's mount it. Let's mount that thing. Let's mount that thing. I was close. And so they began selling taxidermy jackrabbits. With antlers. It became a thing. It's very meme mimetic. It really is. I mean, it was in every American West bar saloon. Well, I mean, think about the, the way people constructed tall tales and like 
we went in search of our folklore at this time. You know, you get things like Sleepy Hollow and all that directly preceding it. Kind of this need for American myth. You know, folklorist John Gutowski sees in Douglas's Jackalope this example of an American tall tale that was publicized by a local community that seeks wider recognition. Through a combination of hoax and media activity, the town or other community draws attention to itself for social or economic reasons. This is the P.T. Barnum effect. No, it really is. Because as another folklorist, Richard Dorson, discusses, to even get people out into the West, there was a major amount of promotion and boostering and hucksterism. That's why they needed pioneers like, you know, the great Daniel Bunn. Who? The rabbit pioneer. No, stop. (laughs) Or Davy Hoppet. No. (laughs) So in the 19th century, settlers transferred that optimistic vision of the American West where it culminated in this boosterism. And he says, while of course other capitalist countries advertise their products, the intensity of the American ethos in advertising, huckstering, attention-getting, media-manipulating, to sell a product, a personality, or a town is beyond compare. Yeah, we cultivate pride in, in our place rather quickly. It's been a hallmark of American existence since the revolution, you know? Right, we have to create our mythos of that area, and it's even better if we can sell it, too. It's the ultimate American myth dream. Capitalism and nationalism all in one place? Are you kidding me? And monsters. And monsters. Okay, so you've got two bored cowboys out in Wyoming with some business sense and a deft hand at taxidermy. They learned it through... A mail order taxidermy service when they were in high school. Okay, so one of my guilty pleasures is Googling bad taxidermy. It makes me so happy. If I'm having a bad day, I Google beautiful libraries or bad taxidermy. Those are my go-tos. And I'm betting I've seen some of their work. Well, they got pretty good at taxiderming these jackalopes, making thousands and thousands of them. This is the origin. This is where it starts. We get our first horny rabbit in the American West with these hucksters. Well, no. So the idea of a horned hare is actually an old idea. Since when? Centuries ago. Oh, God. So there are descriptions of horned hares, along with real and other mythical creatures, dating back to like medieval or earlier times. So like, you mean when you say like with real and mythical creatures, you mean kind of like in a naturalist diary or that kind of thing where there's some, there's the idea that this might be science? Right, it kind of goes along with those ideas we talked about in the yokai and Slipmouth Woman episode. So one of the earliest is the Almirage, a rabbit with a single unicorn-like horn that was in Persian geographic dictionaries in the 1200s. Okay, so um, we all want to roll our eyes and say, that's ridiculous. A rabbit unicorn, don't be silly, but narwhals. Narwhals exist. They do. That and- is true. And so also in Bavarian folklore, there's the Wolpertinger. Wolpertinger? And it has the head of a rabbit, the body of a squirrel, the antlers of a deer, and the wings, what? and occasionally the legs of a pheasant. Does it fly? Sometimes. Is it like that hoppy chicken fly, you think? I think so. I want this to be real. And there are taxidermied versions of it. The Wolpertinger. It will haunt your nightmares. I want it. <laughs> So there are other scientific texts with the lupus cornotus. Horned rabbit. Right. 
So it appeared in the 1650s, Historia Naturalis de Quadrupetubris Libre, the history book of natural quadrangles. Quadrupeds? Quadrangles. Okay. <laughs> you can also see horned rabbits in other works of art, such as in Jan Bruegel of the Elders, Virgin and Child Surrounded by Flowers and Fruits, which if you zoom in on kind of the bottom right-ish corner of it, there's a little horned rabbit. And British naturalist John Ray, in his 1673 Travels Through the Low Countries, Germany, Italy, and France, was out in Delft in a museum of apothecary owned by Jean Vandermeer. And he saw all sorts of wonders describing all these animals that were taxidermied, including the head of a horned hare, which cool. was, and also including things like the tooth of a hippopotamus, which he questioned the existence of this hippopotamus. <laughs> Don't believe everything you see. Good good call there, buddy. So let's just go with this for a moment. Let's pretend that Vandermeer had gotten his hands on a real live horned hare and mounted it. And let's pretend also that these horned hares crawled onto a ship and made their way to the New World. Do we think they are just hiding in this outpost of the West, the American West, along with our friend Bigfoot and Greg? They're best buddies. Well... As a wildlife researcher who was working at the Smithsonian, Suzanne Porak said, Those are fake animals, the result of people sewing taxidermy rabbits and deer antlers together. But then as she was looking through the Smithsonian collection, she found an eastern cottontail rabbit with horns. And she said this rabbit was definitely not one of those. She found a Wolpentinger? A jackalope. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, yes. So back in the 30s, Richard Shope, a scientist, wanted to investigate these horned rabbits. So he examined these wild cottontail rabbits that had been shot by a hunter in Iowa and later examined these other wild rabbits from Kansas. They had, quote, numerous horn-like protuberances on the skin over various parts of their bodies. The animals were referred to popularly as horned or warty rabbit. So he had a theory, and he took the horns and ground them up, put them through a solution and filter, and applied the liquid to healthy rabbits' heads. And guess what happened? Well, using my magical thinking, I'm going to say they grew horns. You're right. No, what? why? Why would they grow horns? Because they're not horns. Well, they kind of are. But they're not bone. Well, not all horns and antlers are bone. Okay. So he discovered that the horns were caused by the shope. Oh, well, that's nice. He named something after himself. That's the... The thing to do. Yeah. Papillomavirus. He named a papillomavirus after himself. Right. Related to human papillomavirus. Which, which is warts. Genital warts. Oh, right. Because other warts are caused by frogs peeing on you. Everyone knows that. Or different viruses. Either are. So this virus, which only affects rabbits and hares would result in these hard, keratinized growths. So they're not always just on the top of the head, but they are always on the head and face. And these afflicted rabbits can, in fact, grow them around their mouths and starve to death. Oh, that's not badass at all. But they do look like bunnies with mustaches. That is amazing, <laughs> but sad. So without a doubt, our modern idea of the jackalope, this portmanteau of jackrabbit and antelope was invented by Douglas Herrick. But as with all good folk tales, there just might be an element of truth in our whiskey-loving, campfire-singing jackalope. 
Well, everyone knows that rabbits could easily take over the world. I don't think everyone knows that. <laughs> well, let me tell you a story. I'm all ears. Oh, no, stop it. You can't do it, too. That's terrible. <laughs> it's all rabbit puns all episode long. Come back. <laughs> so this is the story of how rabbits almost brought down the most powerful man in the world. I'm so excited. So in July 1807, after signing the Treaty of Tilsit, which ended the war between the French and the Russians, Napoleon decided to celebrate by shooting some adorable bunnies for kicks because he was bigger than them. So he arranged to have an outdoor luncheon, which was to be followed by a systematic bunny massacre. I think they called it a hunt. A bunny massacre. So hundreds of bunnies, some claim more than 3,000, were caged and positioned along the edge of a nearby field. And the hunt began when the cages were opened. But our bunnies took a wrong turn at Albuquerque and headed straight for Napoleon. What the hell did Napoleon do? Who? No. I'm sure he was like, get off me and cried. But his staff at first thought this was really funny because clearly it is. It is. <laughs> but eventually they were like swarming him, like crawling up his legs and like some were trying to crawl up his coattails. I think it's like the end of World War Z, but with rabbits is what I imagine. So Napoleon retreated to his carriage. And according to David Chandler, a historian, with a finer understanding of Napoleonic strategy than most of his generals, the rabbit horde divided into two wings and poured around the flanks of the party headed for the imperial coach. Oh, no. But the bunny horde persisted and followed him to the vehicle. Some reportedly even leapt inside, but the attack subsided as he drove away. This is ridiculous. We know. <laughs> It's amazing. But apparently his chief of staff had purchased tame farm bunnies instead of trapping wild hares. So they were expecting to be fed when the doors were open. And they had no idea that they had been sentenced to death by the most powerful man on earth. Do we know that? Because they sure acted like they knew. Silly rabbits. Military maneuvers are for people. So this is obviously the origin of where we get the badass bunny that turns into the jackalope, right? Clearly. Has to be. Um, probably not. Okay, and who who thinks that the rabbits were actually Russian spies? Ooh, me, me, me. <laughs> They're like, you're going to make a Cossack out of us. We'll make a Cossack out of you. <laughs> but no, the idea of rabbits in folklore stretches back forever. Okay. As long as we've had folklore, rabbits have been part of it. So let's stick in America, even though you took a little detour to France. Everyone takes a detour to France at some point. Just ask Ben Franklin. It's a thing you do. But in many Native American tales, the rabbit was like this trickster animal. You know, go along with coyote. The Cherokee, the Creek, and the Biloxi tribes often told kind of humorous stories of a mischievous rabbit. But people of the Central and Eastern Woodland tribes especially the Algonquin-speaking tribes, spoke of Nanabozo, the great hare. And he would often appear as a large white rabbit. He was kind of a creator and culture hero, but also did have a trickster element to him, although it usually wasn't very immoral. He was just clever. Right. And he, in some stories, is the bringer of light and fire. 
Promethean rabbit. And teacher of the sacred rituals. So kind of a big deal. Right. And so he's also considered by many tribes as the kind of creator of Earth as we know it. And while Earth was being created, it was flooded. That happens a lot. And in an Ashinabi origin story featuring Nanabuza, he was camped out on the bank of a river when the waters rose slowly and steadily, forcing him to retreat. Before the water covered what remained of the mountain that he stood on, Nanabuza caught two logs to form a crude raft. As far as he could see in every direction, there were animals of every species. Many out of their element couldn't swim, and their eyes wide and rolling in terror. He hailed the birds and animals swimming nearby. Fetch me some soil so I can try to restore the earth. But as many animals tried and failed, finally the least of their kin, the muskrat, volunteered. He dove and brought back small bits of soil. Nanabuza took the little muskrat's paw and breathed into it. And suddenly, from this land, he was able to create an island on the world. And some tales say that the rabbit or hare it circles the land, making it ever bigger, ever enlarging the land of the earth. That's a noble rabbit. All right, so Native American tales, so that gives us a starting point. And as we move forward in time, I imagine we need to take a pit stop before we get to the jackalope. Well, of course. So I thought it'd be fun to start with a Cajun kind of Creole tale. Is this one you grew up with? They are. So these are the tales of Buki and Lapin, and Lapin being the rabbit. rabbit. So Buki and Lapin in the grocery. Man, there were these two rascals once. Now I'm not going to do the accent. <laughs> <laughs> you do it or I'm doing it. One's name was Buki and the other was Lapin. And Lapin was always fat. He was in good she- shape and Buki was always, always skinny. Man. One day, Buki says, Lapin, why are you so fat? <laughs> this is such a Cajun story. <laughs> I've lived this. He says, how is it that you always fat and in such good shape? So Lapin told him, if you want to join me tonight, I'll show you. So Buki went to meet him. He and Lapin left. The moon was bright and they arrived at a grocery. He arrived just under the middle of the floor. There was a plank that had come unattached. So he pushed the plank and he crawled into the grocery. He said to Buki, now Buki, you must behave yourself. I don't want you to make a pig yourself now. So they arrived in front of this big box and opened it. In the middle of the box, there was a jar, which was full of cream. And Lapin started eating, but Buki was very greedy. And he was grabbing it with both hands and always stuffing his face. It was dripping from both sides of his mouth. Lapin says to Buki, Buki, I told you not to make a pig yourself. So it's time to leave. Buki says, I haven't had enough. He says, we better go. The day is breaking. The storekeeper will open soon and we'll get caught. But Buki didn't want to leave. So Lopin went and passed under the plank and left. Now Buki ate until his belly was full and he was not able to pass through the hole. He was stuck. Now at this time the storekeeper arrived and he went in and found Buki. Ah, he says, man, you're the one that's been stealing my cream, you rascal. You're going to pay for it. You're going to have to scrub the floor. You're going to have to clean up my whole store. And you're going to have to paint. So the shopkeeper made Buki work all day long. And whenever he left, he was so tired and went up to the big live oak where Lapin was lying down sleeping. And he woke him up. And Lapin said, 
Man, what happened to you? Why you look so frazzled? He says, well, I worked all day, all day long. I ate so much, I couldn't pass through that hole. And the storekeeper caught me. Ah, he says, that's what I told you. I told you you had to behave yourself and not make a pig of yourself. You see, when you don't listen to me, how it is? What the hell is a bookie? That's a fantastic question. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know la pain. I don't know bookie. Well, that's because it's not a French word. Oh, okay. Well, I don't feel so out of the loop anymore. So Alcy Fortier was a folklorist and linguist that collected folktales in French Louisiana in the late 1800s. And he noted that this word bouquet did not have like a Parisian French origin. Okay. It was actually tied to a Wolof African language, you know, spoken in like Senegal and Gambia for the word hyena. Oh, okay. Okay. But, but this name is kept in Louisiana versions of the tale, also in Missouri. Interesting. And in Haiti. And in these African and Louisiana tales, bouquet is always the dupe. Now, there are no hyenas in Louisiana. I would argue this point. <laughs> but they didn't sub it in for the French hyena word. They kept it. But it has become a Cajun French word. And it's used metaphorically for an ugly person or an ugly baby. Let's just pause for a moment and acknowledge that the Cajuns have a word for ugly baby. Of course we do. <laughs> So the hyena, along with elephants and lions, are the favorite dupes in African tales. And the true trickster is the rabbit, Lapin. And he usually finds this dupe that will try to imitate him, but who winds up being responsible for both of their actions. So he Tom Sawyer's them, basically. No, he does. Now the trickster figure, especially in African lore, is a figure that's very adept at securing material means of survival. He's a cultural hero to them. It's a very valuable characteristic to have in cultures of scarcity, I would think. So especially in the African cultures, but then you can see how it ties in with the African-Americans. Right. That's that's the one I was talking about. You know, in an environment where you don't have control over your own resources, I would imagine that someone who was particularly adept at securing them would have a lot of cultural capital. Right. But these stories always have this cautionary part of them as well because you have this dupe that tries to be the trickster. So John Roberts states, in essence, animal trickster tales serve to remind enslaved Africans not only of the value of behaviors they associate with tricksters, but also the consequences of acting like a dupe. Heavy consequences. You have to clean and paint. But as you might imagine, the further back you go in time, the more dire the consequences. And the trickster figure as cast as a rabbit is as we said pretty entrenched in a lot of african folklore such as the zambian tale which i will tell you once upon a time simba the lion feci the hyena and kitati the rabbit made up their minds to do a little farming so they went into the country and made a garden and planted all kinds of seeds and they came home and rested for quite a while and then when the time came that their crops should be about right and they were ready for harvesting. They began to say to each other, let's go over to the farm and see how our crops are coming along. So one morning, they started out, and Kititi the rabbit made this proposition. While we're going to the farm, let us not stop on the road. And if anyone does stop, let him be eaten. That's a terrible plan. <laughs> well, his companions did not catch on because they were not as cunning as he was. 
and they knew they could outwalk him. So they were like, sure, we'd have like a little rabbit soup this morning. Why not? <laughs> and they went off. And they had not gone very far when the rabbit stopped. Hello, says Feecee the hyena. Kitati has stopped. He must be eaten. That's the bargain, agreed the lion. Well, said the rabbit, I happen to be thinking. About what, cried his partners. I'm thinking, he said, with a grave philosophical air, about those two stones, one big and one little. One does not go up, nor does the big one go down. The lion and the hyena, having stopped to look at the stones, could only say, well, it's really singular, but it's just as you say. And they all resumed their journey, the rabbit, by this time being well rested. When they'd gone a little bit further, the rabbit stopped again. Aha, said Feecee, Kitati has stopped. Now he must be eaten. I rather think so too, said Simba. Well, said the rabbit, I was thinking again. Their curiosity was once more aroused. Why, he said, I was thinking. When people like us put on new coats, where do the old ones go? This rabbit is a great thinker. (laughs) Both Simba and Feecee, having stopped a moment to consider the matter, exclaimed together, Well, I wonder. And then they went on. So after a little while, they continued on in the hyena. Feecee decided that he was going to get a little philosophical now. He stopped. Here, growled Simba. This won't do. I guess we'll have to eat you, Feecee. Oh, no, said the hyena. I'm thinking. What are you thinking about? They inquired. Oh, I'm thinking about nothing at all, he said, imagining himself very smart and witty. Ah, pshaw cried Kititi. We won't be fooled that way. And so they ate him. <gasps> Poor Buki. <laughs> and when they'd finished eating up their friend, the lion and the rabbit proceeded on their way and presently came to a place where there was a cave and the rabbit stopped. Hmm, said Simba. I'm not hungry as I was this morning, but I guess I'll have to find room for you, little Kititi. Oh, I believe not, replied Kititi. I'm thinking again. Well, said the lion, what is it this time? said the rabbit. I'm thinking about that cave. In olden times, our ancestors used to go in here and go out there. I think I'll try to follow in their footsteps. So he went in one end of the cave and out the other several times, and then he said to the lion, Simba, old fellow, let's see you try to do that. And the lion went into the cave, but he stuck fast and could neither go forward nor back out. After a moment, Kitati was on Simba's back and began eating him. Oh my god. After a little time, he is a Monty Python bunny, clearly. Definitely. Hitched right on a swallow. After a little time, the lion cried, Oh, brother, be impartial and come eat some of the front part of me. But the rabbit replied, Indeed, I can't come around to the front. I'm ashamed to look you in the face. So, having eaten all he was able to, he left the lion there and went and became the sole owner of the farm and its crops. This is a great African example of a trickster rabbit tale. And so these trickster rabbit tales that came from the African traditions and were brought by the enslaved Africans over to America through changing and mixing with Native American stories and other white settlers' stories became like the Lapin Bouquet stories in Cajun French Louisiana and also became the Br'er Rabbit stories. Oh, Br'er Rabbit. Infamous Joel Chandler Harris contribution to the folklore canon of America. Thanks for that. Well, and then Disney did a great oh, yeah. job yeah. with it. Yeah. Thanks, Walt. Thanks. Do you ever think it's funny that like the movie was banned, but one of their biggest rides is still based on the Br'er Rabbit stories? It really does strike me as odd because they update everything. Right. They could update that to like anything. Princess and the Frog. That'd be great. Much better take. So 
there are examples of this, of course, throughout all of Africa. Even South Africa has a strong tradition of the bunny story. And so this is a little different of a story. It's still a trickster rabbit, but it's associated with the moon. And And that's a theme we see like over and over again. Long, long ago, when the world was quite young, the Lady Moon wanted someone to take a message to men. She tried first one creature and then another, but no, they were all too busy. They couldn't go. At last, she called the Crocodile. He's very slow and not much good, but the Lady Moon thought she would pinch his tail and make him go quickly. I like her. So she said to him, go down to men at once and give them this message. As I die and dying live... So also shall you die and dying live. So she wanted to grant the men immortality. Uh The Lady Moon gave this message to Crocodile and pinched his tail and got him on his way. But as he came to a bend in the road and out of sight of the moon, he got slower and slower because he was a lazy crocodile. And she couldn't see him to pinch his tail again. Exactly. Uh So all of a sudden there was a noise. And then there was little hair. Where are you going in such a hurry, Crocodile? I can't stop to speak to you, Hare. Crocodile said, trying to look busy and hurrying up. The Lady Moon has sent me with a message to men. And what's the message, Crocodile? It's a very important one. As I die and dying live, so also shall you die and dying live. That's a stupid message. (laughs) (laughs) Judgmental bunny. Judgmental bunny. Another theme we'll keep seeing. You can't even run, Crocodile. You're so slow. Give the message to me. I'll take it. Okay. So the lazy Crocodile. But you must say it over first and get it right. So Hare said it over and over and over again until Crocodile was happy and he took off like the wind. At last he came to the men and he called them together and said, Listen, the Lady Moon has sent me to tell you, as I die and dying perish, so shall you also die and come wholly to an end. Oh, little creative artistic license there, bunny. It's a mean bunny. Apocalyptic bunny. <laughs> the men looked at each other and shivered. All of a sudden, the flesh on their arms was like goose flesh. What shall we do? What is this message the Lady Moon has sent? But Hare did not care. He danced away on his hind legs and laughed and laughed to think how he had cheated men. Then he returned again to the moon, and she asked, What have you said to men? Oh, Lady Moon, I have given them your message. Like as I die and dying perish, so also shall you die and come wholly to an end. And they are all stiff with fright. (laughs) (laughs) What? cried Lady Moon. What did you tell them? You must be punished. The Lady Moon was very angry, so she took a big stick. When Harris saw the big stick coming near him, he hopped and hopped and ducked and slipped away. And it caught him only once, on his nose. He yelled and screamed and jumped high into the air. He jumped with all his four feet at once, and scratched, 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 and kicking and hitting and clawing at the moon's face. Then he felt better and ran away as hard as he could, holding his broken nose with both his hands. So this is why Hare jumps with two back feet. Why he has a split nose. And why the face of the Lady Moon has long, dark scars. Because Hare's a jackass. Hare is not nice. (laughs) So in other American mythology, legends, and folklore, there are also rabbit's tails. Are they made of cotton? Maybe. That are associated with the moon. Such as in the Aztec tradition, where the gods had 
come together because they need to create a new sun. The gods gathered in the dark at Tenochtitlan to plan the creation of the fifth sun. The arrogant guard, Titsukotl, volunteered himself to be the new sun and bring light to earth. The gods agreed to this and asked Nanahutsun, a modest god, to accompany the proud Tukutsukotl. I'm probably really ruining these names. <laughs> Bear with me. After doing penance in the two hills erected especially for them, the two gods dressed in the ritual regalia, ready to sacrifice themselves by jumping into a ritual bonfire. The arrogant god felt fear to jump into the bonfire, so the first god to sacrifice himself was the humble one, also known as the proxy one, who was dressed modestly, showing his humility. Bravely, he threw himself into the fire without hesitation. He then rose to the heavens, first appearing in the east as the sun, and a proud new god. Ashamed, the proud god then jumped into the fire, rising to the heavens to become the moon. However, so as not to usurp the brightness of the sun, one of the gods threw a rabbit up at the moon, thus dimming its brightness, forever emblazoning the rabbit's image on the moon's face. So... This is an idea that I didn't know, but apparently there is a rabbit on the face of the moon and multiple, multiple cultures and people have seen it. The outline of a rabbit. Google it. Some people have circled it in red so you can see it like all the supernatural things. I mean, it's not hard to see once you point it out. Now, I know the other rabbits in this Aztec lore, one of your favorite rabbits other than the jackalopes and the Napoleon killing rabbits. I do enjoy these rabbits because they are, in the tradition of the other bunnies, kind of badass. They were closely associated with the moon, but they were also closely associated with the intoxicating effects of a potent alcoholic beverage made from cactus, which is what tequila is made of. So there's also the Sinson Totokchen, or the 400 rabbits. And they express the countless attitudes that drunkards adopt as they run the gamut from happiness to sadness and lechery to madness. Yes, 400 drunk bunnies. The four 400 drunk bunnies. That represent the pantheon of bad ideas that come to you as you are drinking alcohol. You can definitely get 400 bad ideas. It's true. It's like they're the seven dwarves of drunkenness. Like, oh, over there, there's vomity. And over there, there's drunk dial regret. And over there, there's... No, he's not that cute, but whatever. That's facts. So you're right. There are a lot of other cultures that have the hare and the moon, the rabbit and the moon. So in Egyptian myth, hares were closely associated with the cycles of the moon because the moon was viewed as masculine when it was waxing and feminine when waning. And hares were also believed to be androgynous, shifting back and forth between genders. And this is not only in Egyptian cultures, this was also very prevalent in European folklore as well. The belief that they could be like shift back and forth between male and female? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Huh. So we know what Egyptian gods and goddesses look like, kind of. Did they have like the people with rabbit head thing happening? Yeah, they have the hair headed god and goddess that can be seen on the Egyptian temple walls of Dendera. The female is believed to be the goddess Unut, and the male being a representation of Osiris. And so interestingly, the Egyptian name for the hair was Un meaning open, and some people feel this could be related to the full moon's watchful open eye. According to legend, the hare was thought to never close its eyes and to be a nocturnal creature like the moon. 
And hares, unlike rabbits, are born with their eyes open. Yeah, you still see on like rabbit keeper blogs, which I, I, I may have gone to a few the other day when I was researching and read stories about people and their bunnies and how much they love them. And it was kind of fun. But you still see like on rabbit fun facts, people list like hares sleep with their eyes open. The hare is always watching you. And judging you, apparently. Yes, yes. And so also, one of the most prevalent traditions of a moon rabbit that is still prevalent in modern culture today is in Asia, and that's the moon rabbit. Called Handahami, and it's a Buddhist teaching of the highest form of giving, is when one sacrifices one's life for the sake of others. And the story is called How the Hare Got Into the Moon. So in a time of great famine... The Bodhisattva was born into a hare and lived in the woods. A Brahmin came to the hare and asked for food. The Bodhisattva was delighted and said, Brahmin, you've done well coming to me for food. This day I will grant you a boon, which I have never granted before. The Brahmin was perplexed, but he was asked to pile up logs and kindle a fire. When this was done, the hare sacrificed himself by jumping into the midst of the flames. The hare addressed the Brahmin with the following stanza, Nor sesame, nor beans, nor rice have I as food to give, but roast with fire my flesh, which I yield, if thou wouldst live. The magnanimous hare jumped with joy in the burning fire and seemingly perished. Saka, the god of gods, who had come to test the hare in the form of the Brahmin, used his miraculous powers to douse the flame. Saka then said to the the Bodhisattva, Wise hare, may your virtue be known throughout the whole world for many years to come. And he drew the sign of the hair on the orb of the moon so that the selfless act would forever be remembered. And so that's one of the many, 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 many versions of the tale, specifically from Sri Lanka. And so this rabbit is often depicted as pounding herbs for the gods. Yes, I've seen that in Red Outline as well. Yes. And many Asian poets, specifically starting in the Han Dynasty, called the rabbit on the moon the Jade Rabbit which is also what the Chinese called their moon lander. Okay, I approve. I approve of that, all of it. I think it's great. It was actually like an online like submission vote kind of thing. Crowdsourcing works wonders. Except for Bodie McBoatface, <laughs> which is a real boat. So the Greeks also had a lot of ideas about hares. Pliny the Elder. He had ideas about Everything. All he did was write. All he there's no way he actually tried everything he wrote down. He would just sit and write whatever people told him. He recommended the meat. <laughs> God, if he had Twitter. This is like if he had Twitter, because he literally just wrote everything. <laughs> At Pliny the Elder says Meat of the hair, cure for sterility. Meal of hair enhances sexual attraction for period of nine days. Hashtag horny rabbit. Tweets to Hippocrates at first do no harm. Get yourself some rabbit meat, son. No. no. Tweets at Homer. Blue is a color. No, blue wasn't a color. Oh my god, Radio Lab. <laughs> Go listen to Radio Lab. So to Aphrodite, the hare was a sacred animal. And it was also associated with Eros. So it became associated with love and was often presented as gifts of love. Wait, a whole rabbit? Whole rabbit. Cool. But I read another thing that hares were actually really common pets, like just like a dog or a cat would be. Well, people have house bunnies now. Yeah, but like in many, many, many vases and works of Greek art, you see children playing with bunnies or hares. 
I know a hare and a bunny are the same thing. <laughs> We're going to use all the words for rabbits interchangeably on this episode because that is our divine right as granted by the hare in the moon. I've been speaking with him. We shared whiskey. Oh, God. So Philosophus the Elder in the third century AD wrote descriptions of Greek paintings. And he described one saying, Aratus are hunting down a hare, but there's no shooting of arrows at the hare since they're trying to catch it alive as an offering more pleasing to Aphrodite. For you know, I imagine what is said to the hare that it possesses a gift of Aphrodite, fertility, to an unusual degree. At any rate, it's said of the female that while she suckles the young she is born, she bears another litter to share the same milk. <laughs> Forthwith, she conceives again. Nor is there any time at all when she's not carrying young. As for the male, he not only begets offspring in the way natural to males, but also himself bears young contrary to nature. And perverted lovers have found in the hare a certain power to produce love, attempting to secure the objects of their affection by compelling magic arts. So that idea of the kind of like hermaphroditic rabbit love machine is throughout cultures because for obvious reasons at hermaphrodite rabbit love machine one (laughs) nsfw (laughs) so obviously it's associated with fertility and those ideas kind of throughout european lore as well right and you see this like in teutonic myth with freya who was attended by hares who were her light bearers, which I like to think means bunnies with torches. But, you know. And she was a headstrong Norse goddess of love and sensuality and women's mysteries, which is like so, all of it. <laughs> so the neo-pagan definition. Right? Do you know what her chariot was pulled by? Meow. Cats. 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 She was a cat lady before it was cool. Woman's mysteries. Knitting. Knitting is very mysterious. That's actually like the one craft I've never been able to master. Wait, but that's what Athena is basically the goddess of. And she was the most (laughs) badass goddess ever. She was like, I'm such a better knitter, loomer, than you. I'm going to turn you into a fucking spider. (laughs) Why can cat ladies not be badass? Freya was pretty badass, I'm pretty sure cat ladies are badass. I just read Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology. Mm -hmm. By the way, pause. Go read it. Immediately, right now. Soon. Right now. Right now. Order it from Amazon while you're listening. So there's a little bit of pagan witchiness, you know, kind of ad hoc verbal staged around Freya, where she's kind of been co-opted to be this like figure of women's mysteries in this tradition. So many like, have been. You know, and, we'll and, talk about another in a minute. Yeah. So there might be something to the whole bunnies and witches thing. Bunnies and witches. Bunnies and witches. So we're talking about our modern friendly witch. No, 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 no. These are the real, like, put a spell on you, grind your bones to make my bread kind of witches. So we'd burn these witches. Yes, these are the ones you burn. So I know that witches are associated with black cats. Okay, before there was a black cat, before that was a thing, or maybe contemporaneously, the most common witches familiar was a hare. That's why there's a hare in the witch. Oh, Black Widow. Yeah, it makes like a short cameo. Yes, it's creepy as fuck. But anyway, so this was especially true in Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. And there was lore that these witchy hares could only be killed by a silver bullet. There was also a lot of talk 
in some European traditions, that the devil himself would take on the form of a three-legged hare. And in England, it's still considered bad luck for a rabbit to cross your path. Now, white rabbits were supposedly death omens, and black rabbits were thought to be reincarnated souls of ancestors. Right, there are still tales told in England that the spirit of a broken-hearted maiden who cannot rest will appear as a white hare to haunt her deceiver, and invisible to others will follow him always until he meets his end. Revenge, bunny. Hell hath no fury like a bunny scorned. No one would believe you that a bunny was haunting you. Harvey. <laughs> Harvey the bunny, exactly. <laughs> These are just kind of like fun superstitions, right? But I found one historical account of a bunny witch that is just so good that we're gonna talk about it. <laughs> a pup hooray. Allegedly. Isabel Gowdy was a very accomplished, educated, and refined young woman. And she was said to be very beautiful. She had bright red hair. But her father coaxed her into a hasty marriage with John Gilbert of Lockley, a church elder and a tenant farmer. People always describe him wherever I have seen him described as, quote, dower, which is not the word you want to come up most often. So she married down and she was kind of the long, classy dame in this one horse town. It's very westerny feeling. But John loved him some churching. But Isabel was not about it. She was over it. She just wanted to stay home. But he was an elder in the church and he needed to be there. So she was alone a lot. And one day when she was alone and he was churching, she went out walking in the woods and she ran into Margaret Brody, who was the illegitimate daughter of a gypsy woman. Oh, that's never good. And the laird or lord of Brody. And Margaret said that she looked forward to seeing Isabel at the Kirk which is a church, I learned. Now, this this part of her historical record is not in her formal confessions, plural. Confessions? That she made to the prickers. That's not a nice term. The prickers. They were witch finders. That was their job. Were they prick people? Well, they inspected people for the witch's mark. Ah, the touch of the devil. I guess the prick of the devil. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. So in 1661, there was a sharp rise in the number of witch trials in Scotland. There were 14 witch-finding groups commissioned by a superior court by November of that year. In Aldern, on the coast, they investigated Isabel Gowdy. And she told authorities all about it. Like, she, like, said everything she could think of. And then some. Yes. Like, she made four heavily air-quoted voluntary confessions about her doings with the devil and witches. She told all about her coven, which she defined as a devil's dozen. So what's a devil's dozen? Well, there are 12 witches and one officer. 13. Right. <gasps> the officer's usually male. So during April and May of 1662, she made her confessions. And this is the story that she tells. On the same day that she'd run into Margaret Brody, she claims that she was on her way to a local farm and bumped into the devil. As you do. In the guise of a handsome stranger. And he made her promise to meet at the church at night. Because it's what the devil does. Why the church? Subversion of things. And she went to meet him at the church at night because she'd promised to. And also that's just what witches do. Whatever the devil tells him yeah, to. Yeah, basically. So when she went to the churchyard to meet the devil and her BFF, Margaret Brody, who was the illegitimate daughter of a gypsy, 
she ran into an entire passel of witches in the churchyard. And they were all people she knew pretty well from around town. And then she was asking you know, to do the standard stuff, renunciation of baptism, signing the black book, you know, and then her witchy foster mother, who was Margaret Brody, brought her forward and, you know, she had a satanic baptism in which the devil marked her on the left shoulder and sucked the blood out of the spot. And so that's where she got her devil mark. Yes. Then he caught the blood in his hand and rubbed it over her face and renamed her Jeanette. Why Jeanette? Because it's cool. I don't know. <laughs> I think that is why. <laughs> I always thought I was more of a Jeanette. You are, my dear. You are. So, interestingly enough, Sir George Mackenzie, an authority on witches' marks, says that the stigma, or the witch's mark, was sometimes like the impression of a hare's foot. That's interesting. I hadn't read that one. Well, that's because there are very, you know, varied and differing opinions on this. Forbes, another authority, believed that it was more like, quote, a little teat. Or like a supernumerary nipple. A little teat. Whatever. <laughs> and so I was reading translations of these transcripts because they're written in Scottish English circa 1662, and that's very hard to read. And this was left out of all of them except the original that I found. And I think that's very amusing. So forgive me here because this is a, a tricky one to read. But <clears throat> And within a few days, it came to me on the new winds of in such, and he had carnal copulation with me. Oh, my. And he was very mickle and black. What's mickle? He was very mickle, black, and rock man. He was a very much black and rough man. He will lie also heavy upon us when he's carnal dealing with us, like a malt feck. don't know what that one means. His members are exceedingly great and long, this is some detail. No man's members are so long and big as that one is. No. He would be amongst us like a horse amongst mares, and he would lie with us with preference of all the multitude, and neither had we nor he any kind of shame about it. So they liked the devil's big member. <laughs> I bet all the priests were just eating this up. Titillated, a little titillated. But yeah, so that's left out of all the modern translations, but I worked through I that. I don't know why. I, I worked through that just for you listeners, because what do we giggle about if not Puritan sex scandals? He also had cloven feet, which he sometimes covered with boots or shoes. That tradition's still around. Yep. We talked about that in the, ooh, Deal with the Devil episode a million years ago. million years ago. Very fun episode, though. And he sometimes appeared in the shape of a deer. Now. There was a hierarchy in the coven, and it was decided fairly, like all things involving women, the prettiest and youngest was the most important. Of course. So she was called the Maiden, and she was the devil's favorite, and all the other witches hated that witch bitch, but they didn't tell her. They could do witchy stuff all the time, but they could only do like really, really, really witchy stuff when the Maiden was around. But mostly they danced. They danced. Oh, danced around the fire, naked. Sort of. Except there were fairies. Well, of course, this is a Scottish story. They came under the influence of fairies, and they were out dancing together. And they meet up with other covens and dance like this around four times a year. Now, it's very, very key point here. The devil also gave them all witch names because it's a cult, and everyone gets a new name. Code name. Those are the rules. So the maid or the maiden was Jane Martin, and he called her over the dike with it. 
What? Because she sang these words when she danced with the devil in pale moonlight. And there was also Margaret Wilson, who the devil called Pickle Nearest the Wind. Why? I don't know, but I do know that pickle means piss. Oh, yuck. <laughs> piss nearest the wind, which is funny. A piss into the wind joke? Yeah, I think so. When Bessie Wilson was called through the cornyard. And then I think Bessie Hay, though, has my favorite nickname. She's called Abel and Stout. My favorite name is Pickle Nearest the Wind. <laughs> and they all had familiars, which were like color-coded, but they were all definitely smaller than the devil because the devil was always the boss. Very clear about that. So they would go to Downey Hills and they would meet the Fairy Queen and she would give them more meat than they could eat, which seems like a lot of meat. And then she, they also met the Fairy King and there were elf bulls who, every time they are mentioned, Isabel always mentions that they affrighted me. So apparently very scary elf bulls, which I'm guessing is where the meat came from. I wonder what an elf bull looks like. Don't know. Don't know. Um, at one point she does say that there was a chariot pulled by toads, which is pretty cool. And there were also these humpbacked elf boys who made elf arrowheads and spoke, quote, ghosty-like. wonder if they were changelings. And so the devil would allow them to use these arrowheads that the elf boys made. And if they invoked his name, the arrows would fly true and kill anyone they aimed at. Now, the devil also made it his business to beat them if they acted up or didn't show up for meetings. Now, the officer... Remember, the officer's the only man in the group, cried when he was hit. And Isabel explains it this way. He's but a soft man and can never defend himself in the least. Oh, damn. Which I think is the ultimate burn. That's nice. But she does record that Margaret Wilson would defend herself admirably and that Bessie Wilson would speak crusty with her tongue to the devil when he beat her. I bet he liked that. He would try to make things up to them when he'd beat them you know, a lot. And so he would give them gifts of money. But by the morning time, the money would always turn to manure, which I think is like basically an early version of a Tinder date. You're like, oh, that looked like gold last night. Yep. Damn. You know, if you're out cavorting with the devil and such, you can't have your husband knowing about it. We have to figure out a way to slip and sneak around. And so there's a spell for that. You take a footstool with three legs and you put it in the bed. You... Repeat three times, I lay down the bassoon in the devil's name, let not it stir till I come again. And it would turn into like a woman-shaped thing. It was kind of like the shadow self that we've talked about before. And kind of the coup de grace of the witching was centered around this conflict involving John Taylor. I'm, I'm assuming that John Taylor is the person that the prickers were after and that they needed Gowdy's testimony to convict him because he is named and named and named and named uh that's who the magistrate was after yes they wanted his land very much i I mean this is a guess this is not in the record but just what my my intuition tells me she describes one meeting that was held at the home of john taylor and it was isabel the devil and john taylor's wife and they made a clay portrait or a poppet with the intention of destroying the Laird of Park's male children. So John brought home some clay in the corner of his plaid, and they made it into a powder, passed it through a sieve, and poured water on it and made it into a paste. And as they poured the water, they in the devil's name, obviously, we pour the water on the meal for the langdwining and ill hill. We put it in the fire that it may be burnt with stick and stroh. It shall be burnt with our will and any stickle upon the hill. That sounds bad. It does. I have no idea what it means. 
the devil taught them these words, and they fell down on their bare knees, and then our hair about our eyes, and our hands lifted up, and looking steadfastly upon the devil, still saying the words over and over, thrice, till it was made. They formed the paste into the poppet, put the devil's name on it, put it in a fire, let it stay there until it was as red as coal, and then took it out. And then the tailors kept it. See? I'm telling you, she's there to convict this man. I'd buy it. Yeah. And there's so much detail. Mm-hmm. And they kept it wrapped in a cloth hanging from a peg. And as often as they wanted to kill a male child of the Laird of Park, they would wet it and then roast it every other day until the child died. And they did this with the first one, and then they did it again with the second one, but they waited six months on him because they, I guess, wanted to be especially nasty. I don't know. Isabel told the court, till it be broken... It will be the death of all the male children that the Laird of Park will ever get. Cast it over the kirk and it will not break till it be broken with an axe or some such thing by man's hand. If it be not broken, it will last 100 years. So another evil puppet. So we talked about puppets some on our dolls episode. Yes. And so with Isabel, we also get a really detailed recounting of the witch's Sabbath, which is something that stays fixed in the minds of prickers and peasants alike for years to come the witch's sabbath is really taken hold of and you still see it when you hear like satanic ritual abuse scandals and stuff but this was a feast at which the witches would sneak into the homes of lairds and gentlemen and steal provisions at night you know they wouldn't bring anything to the feast they would just go get it now it's it's tricky business to sneak into the home of a laird or a gentleman at night and so they wouldn't always go as human people is this where the bunny comes in? It is. It is. But we have to say grace first. Of course. We eat this meat in the devil's name with sorrow and sighing and mickle shame. We shall destroy the house and hold both sheep and neat until the fold. Little good shall come to fore the rest of the little store. So this is grace. Obviously, they're not animals. Well, they're about to be. Isabel Gowdy described in detail her own transformation into a bunny. I knew it. Bunny witch. So here's the spell. You say it three times, obviously. Don't say it three times. You'll turn into a bunny. Cool. Do I get horns? Only if you get papillomavirus. Okay. Which I think you get from um, the devil's very the large. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know. Yeah. Yes. I'm on, I'm on board. I shall go down into the hair with sorrow and sick and mickle care. I shall go down in the devil's name until I come home again. And then she says, instantly, I start in a hair. And there's... Obviously, a counter spell to turn back into a woman because that- wait, wait, wait. This means the bunnies could talk. Yes, it does. I'm so glad you heard that because I heard that too when I read it. Hair, hair, gods in care. I'm in a hair's likeness just now, but I shall be in a woman's likeness even now. First one was better, if you ask me. It's harder to say it as a bunny. Anyway, right? Okay, so let's simplify it. But. She says that once when she was in the shape of a hare, which she was often in the shape of a hare because the devil liked to use the hare to run his errands. It appealed to him. So he'd have her take on the shape. But she was doing the devil's bidding one morning in the shape of a bunny. She ran across some neighbors and they had a couple of hounds with them. And because hounds like to chase rabbits, they started chasing her. I run a very long time, but being hard pressed was forced to take into a house, the door being open and took a refuge behind a chest. And there she was able to say her bunny magic spell back into a human. But there was some writing on witches just a little later in history. It speculated that witches started taking the form of cats instead of hares because of hounds' propensity to hunt, chase, and kill 
rabbits. Oh, they were clever. Yes. But don't dogs like to chase cats too? They don't kill them usually though. Mm. Right? I think it's all speculation. <laughs> well, that's from the Fireside Sphinx, which is a book about cats. So there's also a really creepy Kirkyard story where she and John Taylor, again, and his wife meet the devil in the churchyard, and they raise the corpse of an unchristened child. Ooh, John Taylor is a bastard. Oh, right? Should take his land. And probably kill him. Let's press him. No. Only Giles Corley's. Like, I'm sorry. More weight are the greatest last words of any human ever. So they also took some miscellaneous fingers and toes, grains and leaves, and chopped it all up very small. I'm guessing that means the corpse as well, and formed a noxious mixture, which they took to the cornfields near a mill and tossed it out in the cornfield. And that made it so that the farmers could not grow anything in the fields. Oh, so they enchanted the field. Right, but they double enchanted it because all the grain that should have been growing there appeared conveniently in a secret storehouse for the witches to use. That's convenient. Right. What You know what else is convenient? What? If a witch was captured, she lost her power. That's very convenient. Because that would explain why she didn't just turn into a bunny and hop away home. The devil's like, I'm done with you. <laughs> you, were, you were a sloppy bunny. Sloppy, sloppy bunny. So, interestingly enough, John Taylor's wife corroborated a lot of Isabel's testimony. And this testimony is really interesting because we're allowed to get a really interesting picture of 17th century British Isle folklore. And there's a woman named Emma Wilby, who's an academic who literally wrote the book on Gowdy. And she says, my research suggests that Isabel's confessions contain so much vividly described folkloric detail because she was an oral performer or a village bard. What? Isn't that interesting? I love it. While her interrogators, for her part, were particularly curious and attentive, as a result, her interrogation sessions were unusually creative. So we get this great historical account of popular belief. So do you think she was like a plant? I don't know if that's true, but there isn't a good record of what happened after the trials, which is odd. I think she could have been, and I like that idea. Yeah, like, we need to get this guy who could tell a great story. I mean, she had repeat performances. Four. Four confessions. Why do you need four, four confessions? Because confe- she got a uh, standing ovation and came out for the encore. They're like, tell us what the devil did again. <laughs> Slowly. More detail. His big what? (laughs) So not only do we get this fascinating account of folklore, but we also know that as a result of her testimony, about 40 people were rounded up and carted off and likely strangled and burned on charges of witchcraft. Well, that was effective. Right? If she was a plant, which I think she was. Let's say she is. (laughs) Who knows? Who's to prove us wrong? Let's speculate. Why? No history when you can speculate. But there are a lot of accounts of witches around this time. This was a witch hunting boom in the British Isles. And one really interesting account was written in 1621 by Edward Fairfax of Yorkshire, who is, quote, a highly cultivated gentleman. And he wrote this book called Daemonologia. After six women that he accused of bewitching his daughters, who he called the Timble Witches, were acquitted. And he decided to basically rage tweet. <laughs> A tome. He believed that the he had been treated unfairly because of the hardness of heart of the judges. But there's some bunny stuff in here. More bunnies? More bunnies. So one of the women that was supposedly bewitching his daughters had a familiar that was a hare, apparently. And so we see this on December 6th. We get our first hare mention. 
he finds his daughter in a trance in which she remained not long. And when she came to herself, she told that two hares fought before her very cruelly so that they drew blood of one another. And one of them, she said, was a true color of a hare and the other not so, but mostly white. We all know that's witchy. A spirit. So that was on December 6th. And then on the 4th of April, so quite a while, that's a lot of foreshadowing that vision. His oldest son, William, was in a field in Birkbanks and started a hare out of a bush and set a dog at her. Mr. Smithson, a vicar of Foystone, also saw her. So we have, you know, religious clergy backing up this testimony. Then it must be true. Mm-hmm. And in like sort, caused his dog to run at her, but they quickly lost sight of her. The same day, the child went into a trance again, and a strange woman did appear to her and told her that she was the hare which her brother and the vicar had set dogs at. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. And that she came over the water with her brother William, and that he should see her again the next time he went to this place, which proved true. She also affirmed that when she was in the likeness of a hare or any such thing, that she was then senseless. And then, spoiler alert, his son does meet the hare again. No way. So this is totally true, and those judges were bullshit, and clearly those six women were bewitching his daughters. I Definitely. I mean, definitely. A vicar saw them. But this one's my favorite. This is my favorite witchy bunny story. Witchy bunny. Ooh, witchy bunny. Did you hear the jackalope singing along? See how high she hung. This is the Bowerman at Dartmoor. So once upon a time, pay attention. This is complicated. There was a mighty hunter. Was he as strong as ten men? Yes, he was. He was also kind, jovial, and generous. As ten men? Yes. And brave. Brave. He was very brave. As ten men? Yes. And a bunny? Yes. No bunnies yet. Hold your bunnies. And because he was a strong, brave hunter, and strong, brave hunters cannot have a pet Persian cat because that won't do. This is folklore. We need a theme. He had a pack of hounds who were also... Strong and brave as ten hounds? Yes, that's... Yeah. Exponentially. Now in the woods, there was a coven of witches, and everyone was afraid of them, and they worried about this strong, brave hunter going into the woods alone. Seems like you couldn't walk into the woods without running into a witch. That's absolutely true. That's a fact. They put them in the woods just to make people stay out of them. So everyone was worried about him going in the woods. So this strong, brave, but apparently not humble, because... That's usually the fault. Yeah, God does not give with all of his hands, let's be clear. Says that he was afraid of no one, not even the devil himself. Oh, he shouldn't have said that. Foreshadowing. And that the folk should not fear the crones, for they were just old hags, a mumbo-jumboing to themselves. Probably also shouldn't have said that. One day, he and his hounds were out hunting and being strong and brave, when he happened upon a hare, and they chased it and wound up in a clearing full of mumbo-jumboing crones. And he'd seen them, he knew who they were, he was a witness to all of their wicked witchery, and the crones were pissed. Pickled. But he'd already had ridden away on his horse, who, coincidentally, was also strong and brave. But the witches hatched a plan. There was one among them who had sold her soul to the devil, but apparently had greater bargaining skills than the rest of them and she had been granted the ability to turn into an impressive rabbit no wait okay you don't know what the other witches got like she may have been like a big rabbit and someone else was like lion no she could be any (laughs) animal but she chose at this moment to be a rabbit she got the power to transform into animals we've all seen animorphs that looks like fun oh yeah i don't know what the other witches got i'm assuming 
they would all be rabbits too had that been on the table. So she became like a, a big rabbit. Like a fetching rabbit, yes. The kind you would chase forever if you were a strong, brave hound or a strong, brave hunter. So the rest of the coven was sent away to lie and wait. And the hare chasing went on and on and on. As soon as the hunter saw this impressive hare, he was like, I must have that. And he and his hounds and his horse all went after the hare and the letter H. But the hunter and his dogs were eventually exhausted, but they kept going because they were strong and brave. And the hounds almost nipped the hare. But none of the strong, brave posse realized that they had just charged into the witch's trap, which is described thusly. They encircled the hunter and shrieked and cursed in unison. Such were their numbers and such were their powers that the Boerman was helpless. Both he and his dogs stood transfixed and helpless. The spell the witches cast was petrifaction. And to this day, you can see the result of the Boerman and his dogs that were turned to stone. The Boerman became a huge granite figure like Outcrop and his hounds were the large boulders at his feet. It is said that some dark, misty, moonless nights the Boerman and his dogs come back to life and can be heard chasing some quarry across the Haney Down. So wait, is there like a granite? Yeah. <laughs> they, they can't see. It's I'm showing podcast. you. I'm just describe it. <laughs> you describe it for, for the listeners. It's some rocks. I'll describe it for the listeners. It looks exactly like a Bowerman and his hounds. It's magic. Or some rocks. <laughs> so throughout Europe, you do continue to have rabbits and hares throughout folklore. You know, you get sayings like Madison March Hare, which is related to hares kind of going crazy and leaping and jumping whenever they're boxed up during mating season. I thought mating season was all the time. It is. Okay. And you also see it used in Renaissance paintings as a white rabbit to convey chastity and purity, but also virgin births. Because of the whole androgynous rabbit thing? Most likely. Interesting. Apparently, sometimes they had horns. Who knew? Like the unicorn. Oh, that's like the unicorn. The unicorn was all about a maiden and purity and stuff. It's phallus. It's phallus. <laughs> it's phallus on the unicorn's head. Okay, no. All right, Freud. Okay, Freud. 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 Take a breath. <sighs> I thought you knew this. Don't look at me like I just killed your childhood. I'm going to make you go watch The Last Unicorn <laughs> seven times. America no. did the soundtrack for that movie. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> And, you know, other things you see other than in paintings are the symbol of the three hairs. I've actually drawn this recently to be the illustration for this episode. It's a lot of fun to draw. It's kind of got an M.C. Escher quality to it, a little bit of an optical illusion. The rabbits are arranged in a circle and their ears form a triangle at the center of the symbol. But each ear is conjoined to the head of two rabbits. All right. So you can only see three ears in total. But each hair has two ears. So while this is seen in many Christian churches on the English countries, especially in like Devon, you can really, it's been traced back through time and geographically along the Silk Road to China via Western Eastern Europe and the Middle East. It was most likely first depicted in the Middle East before being reimported centuries later so it's still used in christian jewish islamic and buddhist sites stretching back to 600 bce it's really pleasing image like it's very beautiful and kind of compelling and sort of weirdly peaceful i really like it and in reality no one knows what it means 
Like you can kind of guess that most likely Christians used it um, as a symbol of the Trinity. Because there are three of them. But that's also not its original intent. It was co-opted. And no one knows the original intent. But it does show how far back this symbolism goes, but also the mythology of hairs and how it relates to, you know, all of the cultures we've talked about you know, through the Middle East. Dude, did we leave any China. out? We left cultures out, but <laughs> we went like... <laughs> it was like continents. I was thinking continents. We didn't do Australia. There are no Arctic bunny tails either. But, you know, we started talking about doing this episode on hares and rabbits mythology, talking about the Easter bunny. Because nobody knows where that started, right? We all had to suffer through seeing the guy in the bad bunny suit that still haunts our nightmares. Maybe that's just me. No, I think it's everyone. Have you seen the pictures? They're all horrible. Google evil Easter bunny. (laughs) Or just Google bunny pictures. They're never, never nice looking. So we all had our first furry experience. We were all scarred by it. Whatever. But why? Why do we have to live through this experience? Well, like you said, no one knows exactly where the Easter Bunny came from. So if you listen to that one guy who posts that the chemtrails are to be worried about and that Saturnalia is the root of all things Christmas and there's no such thing and we're all so silly for being sheeple, he will also tell you that the Easter Bunny is based on the pagan goddess of Oster. And she has like a bunny companion or a bunny familiar. And she's like tied to spring and birth and eggs. Definitely eggs. For sure eggs. Because Oster sounds like Ova. And that's got to be true. Like, right? Right? If you believe every meme you read, maybe so. <laughs> but hold your cat chariot. I want one. No, I actually want Pomeranian's. To be my sled dogs. But they really were sled dogs. I know. I don't think there ever really were cat chariots. But we'll get there. Hold on. So, I mean, without a doubt, throughout European folklore, hares are seen as symbols of, like, fertility, sexuality, springtime. We've shown many, many occurrences of it relating to the moon. And the moon is often tied to women. Right. Cycles. Things. Cycles. Exactly. We get the best symbols. Hey, moon's awesome. Moon's awesome. I would take moon. But periods are not. And that's the only reason we can get them. (laughs) But there's never been any kind of like Christian symbolism Easter bunny. Not that anyone can tag or tie down. Nope, definitely tag. It's on Twitter. (laughs) This episode's all about ancient Twitter. So the Easter hare was first mentioned in Germany in German writing in 1572. And in a 17th century German book, the Easter hare is portrayed as the shy creature that lays eggs Interesting. In, in a secluded spot in the garden. And that was published in 1682 by George Frank von Frankenau. Who has the most amazing name. But even then, even in the 1600s, he referred to the hare as an old fable, this egg-bearing hare. And so it lays only red eggs on Holy Thursday. So that's the Thursday before Easter. We're getting blood eggs, blood of Christ, rebirth in eggs. So it's definitely a possible origin for the symbolism. And in Mesopotamian traditions, such as like the Eastern Orthodox Church, that is the explanation for the dying of the eggs red. So I didn't read this anywhere but my Catholic bells were ringing, and I thought of this old story that maybe has a tie to it. So, Mary Magdalene... Jesus' wife. 
Exactly. Not exactly. That's not exactly <laughs> true. <laughs> like, exactly, eh. according to Dan Brown. Okay. Presented herself to Emperor Tiberius Caesar in Rome to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And she brought an egg to illustrate her message. So she was holding, holding the egg out to him. And she exclaimed, for the first time, what is now the Universal Easter Proclamation, Christ is risen. The emperor, mocking her, said that Jesus had no more risen than the egg in her hand was red. So guess what happened? Well, if I'm writing this down, I assume that the egg turned red. (laughs) Yes. And so the emperor knew she was telling the truth and then punished Pontius Pilate. So I'm not sure. No one knows the exact origin. Most likely it is related to the blood, but that's an interesting little take on it. I find that very interesting. I'm proud of your Catholic bells. Well, thank you. Keep them in good working order. And so for Easter, the egg-laying hare would lay eggs of various colors. And decorating eggs for Easter dates back to the 13th century. So just as people do now, they would abstain from things like meat or other things during Lenten season. Mm -hmm. Because we had to be sad. Yes. Okay. And back then, eggs were considered a food to be abstained from by the Catholic Church. And so, like during Lent? Yeah. Okay. And so after, when you could break that fast, you could eat eggs. And to save a lot of those eggs, you could boil them. Okay. And so also in Germany, there's a custom of candy rabbits that's seen at least as far back as the early 19th century. And the OED cited in Household Words from 1851, many also were the sugar hares, Easter hares, those fabulous creatures so dear to German children. We love the Easter hares with our schnitzel and our Lutherhausen. So this idea was introduced into American by our Pennsylvania Dutch. Who are not Dutch. Deutsch. I know, it still boggles my mind. During the 1700s. So these children would look forward to Osterhaus. Osterhaus. They believed that if they were good, this judgmental bunny, or hare, would lay a nest of colored eggs for them. And Pennsylvania Dutch, published in 1882, Phoebe Gibbons writes... If the children have no garden, they make nests in the woodshed, barn, or house. They gather colored flowers for the rabbit to eat. Ah. So that it could like colored eggs, you get it? Right. If there be a garden, the eggs are hidden singly in the green grass, boxwood, or elsewhere. On Easter Sunday morning, they whistle for the rabbit. And the children imagine that they see him jump the fence. After church, on Easter Sunday morning, they hunt the eggs. And in the afternoon, the boys go out in the meadow and crack eggs or play with them like marbles, which we still do. Pock, pock. Pock, pock. Pock, pock. Wait. <clears throat> no, honey. You can't pock, pock and leave. You have to, um, you have to explain pock, pock. You, you. You pock. You hit each other's eggs together until they break. Right. And if your egg cracks, you're done with pocking. Yeah. And my cousin Luke. Luke. Would always have a wooden egg painted because he's a bastard. I love you, Luke. <laughs> I love you. Just so he would saying. win all the pot pot? Until, until someone until called like him Uncle out. Uncle Ben called him out. <laughs> and sometimes children were invited to a neighbor's to hunt eggs. So they even had Easter egg hunts ah. back then. All right, so at this point, he is still a distinguished wild hare. When does he become our beloved snuggly bunnykins? Well, it's most likely kind of an Americanization of it and 
as we like to do, like we talked about the jackalope. Commercialize. Yeah, we got to market that. Like Santa. Of course. Okay. So the term bunny began showing up in 1883 article in the Lancaster, Pennsylvania Daily Intelligencer. To bunny is attributed the laying of the many beautiful eggs which fill the nest that good little boys and girls are apt to find on Easter morning. Now, 10 years later, in a Missouri paper, it was cited as the Easter bunny. That's catchy. indeed kind. That's catchy. But by the 1940s, it was the Easter bunny everywhere because people had started commercializing it and using it for marketing and selling sugared Easter bunnies and things like that. We love our Easter bunnies. There's chocolate. But wait, wait, wait. Are we not going to go down the path of the pagan goddess here? Are we not going to talk about Oster and her obvious ties to Easter eggs and how she spawned the entire Easter movement? We're really just celebrating a pagan holiday. Why is there this war on Easter? Oh, you want to go down this rabbit hole? I Let's Fox News the shit out of this. There's a fox in the bunny house. So the supposed Saxon goddess Ostera, there's actually only one piece of documentary evidence that she exists. A very passing mention in Bidet's The Reckoning of Time from the 8th century, where he explains that lunar month Estramonath was once called after a goddess named Ostera, in which honor feasts were celebrated. So there's much debate as to whether she existed, if this was just something he heard or made up. I think this is like St. Expedite. It might be. Would you like to explain St. Expedite? So St. Expedite is another folk Catholic tradition from Louisiana, New Orleans specifically, where there is a local folk saint or people's saint named St. Expedite. And he exists because a cart arrived at a church that was marked Expedite. And not knowing what it meant, they assumed that it was the name of the saint inside. And now he is on display with that name. And so it's important to find the spelling of her name, an E-O-S-T-R-E. So that's why people think there might be some linguistic connection to Easter. And some people also claim, and this is a li- really, really far off, that Easter is tied to Ishtar, mm. which is the Assyrian and Babylonian goddess of fertility and sex. And that is just really cuckoo bananas. Nothing. Nothing pointing to that. I mean, could it not be east? Like sun rising, like new day? Is it not just that? Well, so that is the linguistic link. That is the same origin of the word. One person that believed that Ostera might be more than just a creation of Bidet was Grimm. Oh. Remember that guy? They were a couple, huh? Two. Okay. <laughs> but he felt that there is nothing improbable in them. Nay, the first of them is justified by clear traces in the vocabularies of Germanic tribes. And so he did look at the different months that had the kind of linguistic ties to it. This is what happens when people dally outside their area of specified study. You're a folklorist, not a linguist. Stop he didn't it. even do it. They just had people go out and give the stories for him. Sorry to ruin that for you. <laughs> So he said, this Ostera, like the Anglo-Saxon Istra, must in heathen religion have denoted a higher being whose worship was so firmly rooted that the Christian teachers tolerated the name and applied it to one of their own grandest anniversaries. Um, no. It's speculation. Okay, it's idle speculation. (laughs) But at least he has, like, some 
mild facts to tie it to. So Holtzman, another folklorist of the time, wrote in his 1874 Deutsch Mythologies that the Easter hare is unintelligible to me. <laughs> okay. But probably the hare was the sacred animal of Ostera. Probably. I don't know. It's literally unintelligible to me. Nobody knows. But, this is the conclusion that he comes to. Like, It's not my job to know, but if I had to guess, I would say maybe she had a pet. No, that's like exactly what it is. And yeah. this got picked up by other folklorists and like a little modified, a little changed. And in 1961, we get Christian Hole who wrote, The hare was the sacred beast of Estra or Ostera, a Saxon goddess of spring and of the dawn. Cite your sources, man. None. <laughs> sources. So the Oxford Dictionary of English Folklore states, There is no shred of evidence that hares were sa- sacred to Eostra, noting that Bidet does not associate her with any animal. And that is that is the source. Like, that's the one we've got, is Bidet. Oh, that's it. I probably like saying Bidet because I pronounce everything French. His <laughs> name is like Bede. <laughs> it's probably like Beady, but that happens. There's no excellent go on that E. It's probably Bede. Sorry. I prefer Bidet. But, you know, this has been picked up by, you know, kind of neo-paganism and has been embraced as a kind of spring and fertility goddess. And, you know, some of this does stem back to uh, your favorites. The Victorians. Because we know what they like to do. Let me make things more important than they are by assigning ancient roots to them and declaring myself very smart and spiritual. That's exactly what they love to do. I mean, we kind of talked about it in the Halloween episode. Uh, we kind of talked about it in the Vampires episode. We kind of talked about it in the Houdini episode. We kind of we kind of talk about that a lot. But like how they tie it to those old, old traditions. Right. Specifically. Happen all the time. Yes. Yes. Ron Hutton, a British historian, said, It was assumed that the people who actually held the beliefs and practiced the customs would long have forgotten their original real significance, which could only be reconstructed by scholars. Mm. The latter, therefore, paid very little attention to the social context in which the ideas and actions concerned had actually been carried on during their recent history, when they were best recorded. Many collectors and commentators managed to combine a powerful affection for the countryside and rural life with the crushing condescension towards the ordinary people who carried on that life. Damn, drop the mic, you British historian. <laughs> that is a scolding, if if st- I have ever heard one. You see him wagging his finger? The condescension that they had to the very ordinary people to which they described the belief. Mah. Speaking of projection and co-opting and sort of marketing poise, I have a question for you. Yes, ma'am. Why is it possible for me to buy a green rabbit's foot keychain at my local Walmart. Or when went at the arcade, like I always did when I was a kid. I had a green rabbit's foot. I had a yellow one. Mine would win in a fight and you know it. <laughs> well, it's one of the folklores that we love, Bill Ellis. Yes, we do love him. Wrote a great paper on it. Is it is it scathing like that one we just read? Does he drop the mic? He is a little more subtle, but he does. Okay. So he writes about rabbit's feet and, you know, that it's a fetish. It's an object that is culturally invested with magical properties. Yes. That makes perfect sense. I follow him. 
And these objects get magical properties, not just by existing, but by the process in which they are created. And this determines their kind of magical powers. So you have to do a ritual. You have to get it from a certain animal. You have to say a spell. You have to say it three times in the devil's name, obviously. Exactly. Right. And so these have been sold for centuries in America and really throughout the world. So one old advertisement read, you could get this rabbit foot. And it was the left hind foot of a rabbit killed in a country churchyard at midnight during the dark of a moon on Friday the 13th of the month by a cross-eyed, left-handed, red-headed, bow-legged man riding a white horse. So everything that could be wrong with this scene is. Yes. It's like the worst of everything. Is all of your boogeyman subversive, yeah, backward elements just mashed up into one amazing scene. So you've got like your rear and left that are sinister. You've got a red-headed person who has physical deformities. Well, clearly, I mean, we have all heard that gingers have no soul. Right? It's true. It's That's true. A- you even got like an albino horse. Which is considered, yeah, bad luck. It's the dark of the moon. Oh, no. Friday the 13th. That's obviously bad because things, reasons. And then the tradition held that the animal must be killed on a grave. And the more wicked the person buried beneath, the more strong of a charm the fetish would get. Ooh. And I am assuming that's why President Cleveland had a rabbit's foot that was supposedly created on the grave of Jesse James. Of course. Mm. Mighty rabbit's foot. And of course, there's those associations with familiars, mm-hmm. giving it magical properties. Well, and then I think back to the witch's mark looking like the impression of a hare's foot or the devil being a three-legged rabbit. And I'm assuming because we've learned nothing, if not that rabbits have lots of babies, that it also has fertility ties. Right. I mean, your proliferation of good luck. Mm. You're literally always pregnant, even the guys. I'm glad I'm not a bunny. And he says, possessing a fetish that embodies the essence of a dangerous other, whether a trickster. Like Lapin or Br'er Rabbit or Kitty Or a bad man. Like Jesse James. Or a witch. Like Isabel Gowdy. And using it for one's own purpose effectively neutralizes that thread represented by that other. This is why your grandfather or great-grandfather has that Nazi pistol in his attic. Yeah, you take that negative power and you control it. You take it away from them. Exactly. You've disarmed it and you have proof. And just like in the kind of African-American and African traditions we've talked about, Native American as well, you have those trickster rabbits and this can remind the bear of courage in an adverse situation be like Br'er rabbit be like lapin use your intelligence escape the lion are those greater problems in the world but you know that question still remains you know is that lucky rabbit's foot you pick up at walmart and gas station actually lucky even if it wasn't taken from the rear left foot of a rabbit by a deformed person at midnight over an evil person's grave? Well, the answer is yes. Of course it is. Because the belief in the fetish is the most important aspect. Because now that rabbit foot's power 
does not draw on its creation, but it draws on the belief. It draws on the stories of rabbits throughout history and folklore. So even if it is just based on a bunch of stories, you and I both know that there's no such thing as just a story. No, it's more than just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.